0: Our scripture reading for today comes from John 5, verses 19 through 30. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son, and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own, as I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is God's word. Please be seated.
1: Well, good evening to each one. My name is Gary Nebeker. My wife, Denise, and I are members here at Redemption Tucson. We love being a part of this family of God. Um, I do look forward to the day uh, where I can see out in the audience and there are no more masks. Amen. 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 As the years go by, oh, look at that. I love it. (laughs) Uh, I look forward to the day uh, to get to know, uh, my wife and I look uh, forward to the day we get to know as many of you as we possibly can. Let me begin our time with a prayer, and then we'll jump right into the text. Let's pray, shall we? Our loving Lord, uh, we come to you tonight with anticipation of what you will reveal to us from from your scriptures. Will you stir in us what needs to be stirred? And may we see something of you that we haven't seen before that will incite us to deeper love and praise. We ask this in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. How would you describe Jesus to someone? How would you describe Jesus to someone that you love? Think about that for a minute. How would you describe Jesus to someone who maybe doesn't know who Jesus is? What words would you use? What images would you use? Well, truth be told, there aren't enough words in human languages (laughs) to describe how wonderful the Lord Jesus is. He is, after all, the epitome and personification of all that is true, good, and beautiful. And in fact, there are about 150 different titles used in the Bible to speak of the Lord Jesus. So He is our Lord, He's our Savior, He's the Good Shepherd, He is the lover of our souls, and the list goes on and on and on. But brothers and sisters and friends, I, I, have, to, I have to tell you something, I don't often think of Jesus as judge. Do you? In this passage that we're looking at tonight, this is one of the few places in the New Testament where Jesus says he is the judge of the universe. That's a remarkable claim. In fact, in these passages that we're looking at this evening, Jesus makes a number of astounding claims. And uh, these statements are little mini sermons that he preached after he healed a man who was paralyzed for 38 years. And man, did the Lord Jesus stir up a controversy! If we could condense all the ideas that are in John verses uh, 5, 19 through 29, that's mini-sermon number one, and uh, verses 30 through the end of the chapter through uh, verse 47, that's mini-sermon number two, we could say something like this. Jesus and his Father have such a close, intimate, working, yeah, working relationship that has profound implications for the destiny of humankind. I want you to allow your imagination to run wild for a moment. I'm an old college professor, so I love to do things like this. Imagine with me that you're a Jewish man or a Jewish woman and boys and girls, you're a Jewish boy, a Jewish girl, and you grow up listening to the word, the scriptures, and you know that in the scriptures there's this promise of this great deliverer who will come one day. Well, some of your friends say, hey, there's going to be a festival up in Jerusalem. Yeah, I am down for that. Let's go. Hey, we're going up to Jerusalem for one of the festivals. So, you, you know, you travel for a while and you arrive in Jerusalem, you see the city. And then as you're walking into the city, hey, you know, there's this guy, Jesus. He's, he's a controversial prophet. In fact, he healed this guy that was paralyzed for 38 years. And man, the religious leaders do not like this Jesus guy. In fact, they want to kill him because he was breaking the Sabbath and even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So you're going, oh, okay. All right. I I just wanted to go to the festival. I, I wasn't sure I wanted to get involved in a religious controversy. So you're walking through the streets, you're moving toward the temple. You see the crowd is starting to thicken and you hear the voice in the distance of someone that sounds like they could be a preacher. And you kind of Move your way through the audience, and sure enough, there he is. There's there's the young man. That must be the Jesus fellow that he was talking about. So so everybody's talking about. So So you're listening to this young man make a number of outstanding, outlandish claims. For example, I remember there we were at the festival and Jesus claims that God is his own father. Now, as Jewish people, we would say, our father, but Jesus is going around saying, My Father, my Father. Whew. And then Jesus said, He sees the Father. Working and, and doing things, how can that be? When Moses told us in Exodus 33, 20, no one can see me and live. How, how can this be? And then Jesus said he gives life to whoever he wants to. Well, I, okay, that kind of went over my head. Woo, I, I, I've already got life. Why, why would he want to give me life? And then he said that God the Father had given him authority to judge. Well, well, wait a minute. I didn't think God was going to give a a man the job of judging the world. What's, what's What's going on there? Oh, and did you hear what he said? He shares his honor with the Father. How could that be? The prophet Isaiah, God says, I am the Lord. That is my name. I share my glory with no one. And Jesus is saying he is sharing his honor, his glory with the Father. Hmm. Eternal life. Did he say something about eternal life? Yeah, yeah. He said he gives eternal life to those who believe in him. Oh, yeah, I remember Daniel 12, too, where the prophet says that God's going to holler and people are going to come out of the graves and have eternal life, but some are going to have everlasting shame and contempt. Is that what everlasting life of Jesus was talking about? And then he said, I mean, these claims are astounding. Now, a lot of this stuff's going over our heads, but some of this stuff is just absolutely incredible, the things he's saying. He will deliver those who believe in him from condemnation. Well I didn't I didn't think we were condemned. Now, are we condemned? Then he says that he's the son of man. Now son of man, you know it's kind of like, hey dude, you know son of man, son of man, dude, you know, regular guy, uh, common common parlance in, in ancient, uh, Uh, Near Eastern culture, but in Daniel 7, the Son of Man is this guy who comes to the Ancient of Days, and the Ancient of Days gives the Son of Man an everlasting kingdom. The Son of Man is some kind of incredible king. I think I heard Jesus say that he was the Son of Man out of Daniel 7, not just a regular dude. Oh, and did you hear what else he said? He said that one day he is going to shout and everybody's going to get resurrected. I don't know. Okay, let's dial our imaginations back in and tune in to modern time, contemporary time. You can imagine that on that day of the Jewish festival, there were all kinds of emotions and reactions going on. You know that the religious leaders were angry because this is blas- these are claims are blasphemous. I imagine, too, that there were probably some reactions and emotions of indifference or cynicism. Ah, oh, this Jesus guy he, he might be some kind of sorcerer who, who performed some kind of magic to make this guy who was paralyzed get up from and walk after 38 years. Yeah, these wannabe messiahs come a dime a dozen. I remember Thaddeus a couple years ago, he created this rebellion. Then Judas from Galilee, he, he in the time of the census had this claim of being a messiah. I don't know about this Jesus guy. Let's go do some shopping. The market's got some great deals. Um, but I imagine, too, that there were those who heard Jesus in the festival that something deep was stirred in them. Something they heard brought a strange warmth to their heart. Could this be the one? I I know there are a lot of wannabe messiahs out there, but could this be the one that we've been looking for? What are your emotions and reactions to these astonishing claims? In the middle of all these claims, verse 24 is one of the most precious promises in all the Gospels. This is one of the first Bible verses I memorized as a young man. Jesus, in the day of that festival, said, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. A quick clarification regarding eternal life as it occurs in the Gospel of John. Eternal life for the Apostle John, and as Jesus is describing it here, is a, not just quantity of life, eternal, but it's a quality of life as well. It's an eternal kind of life. And one of the best clues that we get of what eternal life is is in Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17, 3, where Jesus prays this. This is eternal life that they know you. Know is a a, a term of intimacy. That they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Whenever you see eternal life from now on in the Gospel of John, always think of relational intimacy. Relational intimacy with God. Relational intimacy with God. So Nebuchadnezzar paraphrase of verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me, you can be in a relationally intimate relationship with me and you're not going to come into judgment anymore but you have passed from death to life regarding this eternal quality of life that Jesus speaks of those who hear his voice he says in verse 26 respond and come to him and he gets they get that kind of relational connection with him Earlier in this passage, chapter 5, Jesus said that the Father had appointed him, Jesus the Son, as the judge. And verse 27, he tells us why he was appointed the judge. It is because he is the Son of Man that Daniel 7 predicted. And and, and there's no doubt to this when you read the book of Revelation, same author, Gospel of John uh, author of the book of Revelation says, Jesus is the one. And the description of Daniel 7 and Revelation 1, verse 18 and following, uh, uh, 12 and following, look a lot like Daniel 7. Uh, this, th- that's an astounding <laughs> claim. Jesus says, I'm the king of all the universe. I have an everlasting king. Now, you're in that festival that day, and you're going, did I mishear him? Uh, uh, wow. But there is one final claim in this mini-sermon that Jesus gives that's totally mind-blowing. In addition to being the judge of all humankind and identifying himself as the Son of Man, Jesus says that one day he will resurrect every person who has ever lived over the course of human history. Well, According to the Population Reference Bureau in Washington, D.C., it is estimated that about 107 billion people have lived on the planet since the beginning of uh, recorded history. Uh, I, I think, I, I don't know if that figure is right, it, it's probably in the ballpark, but here's something to ponder. One day, Jesus is going to say the word and billions of people will be resurrected. Graveyards, cemeteries, crematoriums, soldiers whose bodies have been disintegrated, reconstituted, sailors and people who've died in the ocean, bodies reconstituted, people dead and murdered, Bodies hidden, reconstituted. Every single person who has ever lived will be resurrected. This is one of the great mysteries of Christian theology. Why would God reconstitute people to physicality? Why don't you just let people die and rot? That is, It is a mysterious thing. This is, this is absolutely, I mean, if you're in that festival that day, something has to be stirring in you where you're going, Whew. why will everybody who's ever been born and died be resurrected? Well, in the broad sweep of the Bible, I think the answer to that is everyone who's ever lived will be resurrected, so that their lives will be evaluated. All people will be resurrected so that justice may be served. Our God is a God of moral integrity. Vengeance is mine says the Lord. Deep In the human psyche is this longing to see justice served, especially if you've been on the receiving end of evil. Throughout history, there have been countless stories of crime, atrocities, abuse, oppression, betrayal, where justice was never served. All the wrongs, all the inequities and cruelty that people have inflicted upon each other over the course of time will be brought to light that day and evaluated. And if you notice from our passage, there are two categories of people that will be judged. Those who have done good, says Jesus, and those who have done evil. It's important to clarify here that what Jesus is saying is, Do good works and you'll go to heaven, do bad things, you'll go to hell. That's not really what's going on here. In fact, what's going on here is a reiteration of what John the Apostle had already said earlier in his gospel. Those who have done good are those who have come to Christ. Those who recognize their need for someone to deliver them from sin. Someone who wants to be relationally intimate with God. Those who've come to Christ so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. John 3.21 And those who have done evil, these are people who didn't want relationship with God. They loved darkness, John says. Darkness being a metaphor of evil and falsehood. They wanted that rather than the light. Their works were evil, John says, chapter 3, verse 19. And when these two groups of people are evaluated, they will be assigned to one of two destinies, either eternal life and intimacy with God or eternal separation apart from God. What does all of this mean for us today, this evening? What does it mean for those who have not believed in Jesus yet? The Bible tells this very interesting story about the human condition. It's bad news. The bad news is all humans are born morally corrupt. We all have this deadly disease that has symptoms of selfishness and self-focus, and it spreads and it corrupts others. Moral corruption is what theologians call it. But not only that, all humans are sinners by practice. Paul says all have sinned and are lacking morality. We practice sin, but maybe the harshest of the bad news is this. The Bible teaches, and Jesus himself teaches this, that humankind, because of Adam's disobedience, Adam and Eve's disobedience, all of humankind is judicially condemned. Paul makes this point very forcefully and powerfully in Romans 5.12-21. But John the Apostle says the same thing. John the Apostle, in this very gospel that we're studying, says whoever believes in Jesus is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God, John 3, 18. And again, in verse uh, 36 of chapter 3, John says, whoever believes in the Son has Eternal life, relational intimacy with God. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. All of this is bad news, but it is so wonderful to know that Jesus in this very same gospel, the gospel of John, says this, I did not come to judge the world but to save the world. Jesus wants to save the world from moral corruption, the power of sin that causes us to practice sin, and he will deliver us from the judicial penalty of eternal condemnation. He wants to save the world. He He didn't come in the world to judge it, but to save it. That's an important thing to consider when we think of Jesus as judge and he will, he will make good on his promise to deliver. What does all of this mean for those of us who are already believers in Jesus? Jesus as judge, what does that mean? What can we think about as we're driving home tonight about Jesus as judge? Well. From this verse that we've looked at, verse 24 of chapter 5, the promise is there. You can bank, it, take it to the bank. Romans 8, 1 brings it home as well as do other scriptures, that we have been acquitted. We are not guilty. We are declared innocent before God. We're declared righteous before God when we put our trust in Jesus' death on the cross to save us from that threefold plague corruption, practicing sin, and the judicial penalty of sin. But all of us have an appointment one day. All of us in here have a one-on-one meeting with Jesus one day scheduled. I guess we better put it in our calendar if we haven't already. I don't know about you, I I just don't think about that day too much. We will be judged, not for being condemned or any kind of judicial judgment, but in scriptures like 1 Corinthians 3, 1 Corinthians 4, Romans 14, 2 Corinthians 5, there is what's called the judgment seat of Christ. And we will have to answer to God for how we've stewarded the gifts and talents He has given us. Our motivations for service will be evaluated. Thoughts and deeds will be evaluated. The secrets of our hearts will be evaluated. All of these will be scrutinized. Now, I don't know about you but I don't like to think about that judgment seat too much. But there's something that I think is profoundly true in what the New Testament says of the believer in that day of judgment. From scriptures such as 1 John 3.2 and Philippians 3.21, it does seem that we will receive our judgment after we've been physically resurrected. And when the believer is physically resurrected, we will be morally, and physically perfect. Hallelujah! <laughs> and that's how we will appear before our judge. And when the judge makes the declarations and evaluations which are appropriate to his moral character, we will concur that those are just judgment. Uh, just judgment, As the verse says in uh, 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 verse 30, as I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just. But there's one other thing that I think will prepare us well, and this is what I would love for you guys to think about when you're driving home tonight. How do we best prepare ourselves for Jesus as our judge? 1 John four sixteen through 18. If you have a Bible or a Bible app, uh, grab that real quick. First John 4, verses 16 through 18. Love this. I love this passage. Beginning with verse 16. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. You know, people who love people, who are Christians who love people, well, those are the people that love God. By this, love is perfected with us. Love is made mature. Love grows. That's the the sense of perfected. By this, love is perfected with us, so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. Because as Jesus is, so also we are in the world. That little phrase is a little tricky to understand, but the sense of it is Jesus was the greatest lover of people that ever lived, and by virtue of the Holy Spirit indwelling us as Christians, we can love as Christ loved. That's the sense, I believe, of that verse. There is no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because He first loved us. Here's how we prepare ourselves, brothers and sisters. We drastically depend on the Holy Spirit, and we love people. Love, love, love. Love your brothers and sisters that you love and love to hang out with. Love your brothers and sisters that are difficult to love. Love your enemies. These days we're living in, y'all, have tested our love, haven't they? Man, I know my love game needs to step up. COVID, social unrest, the election. Um, I've been following Jesus over 40 years, and I still got some growing up to do when it comes to love. But this is the kind of thing that will prepare us for that day when we face Jesus, our judge. But there's one final thought to think it's this. Jesus, our judge, loves us more than anyone else. And in that day, the one who judges us, we have to remember the one who loves us. Let me pray for us. Lord, um, we can kind of put in our mind's eye what it was like that day at the festival. And uh, here we are, Lord. We have the benefit so many, many years later to think about these astounding claims you make. We believe them. We believe them. We believe you will make good on them. Lord, will you prepare us for that day? We don't want to be ashamed, but we want our hearts to be ready. And so, We as a church, we confess our need to allow you to love through us more powerfully than we have. Lord, would you make Redemption Tucson a beacon in this city, a beacon of your love, so that when folks look in this church and they see us interact and they see how we interface with the city, they will stand up and take notice. Lord Jesus, we want you to become famous in Tucson through the power of the Holy Spirit and the power of your gospel. Please have your way with us to this end, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.